my name is Glenn Washington, and I'm backstage because we're about to kick off a live story extravaganza. in the land in front of a sold-out audience from PRX and NPR. Drama Mama. Do not miss it. You're listening to Snap Judgment, recorded before a live audience at the Oakland Museum of California from PRX and NPR. Get ready. My mother has a huge family. And every year, they have a family reunion. And she's always trying to get me to go, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. I haven't gone since I was a little kid. Finally, she wore me down. All right, let's go. It was getting our family reunion on, you know, bean bagging and horseshoes. It's a three-day affair. And my mama said, look, look ahead. You got a cousin that lived up in Malaysia. You live in Malaysia. I want you to go talk to her right away. She's right over the hill. Get over there. All right. How you doing? What's going on, La? Bahasa Malaya, La. And she's like, I don't speak none of that nonsense. Uh, my mom tells me you lived in Malaysia. Uh, did you have a good time over there? <sighs> Better still. I got a question for you. Uh-huh. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> as your personal savior? Well, you know what? Um, my religion is kind of complicated. And, um, you know, I'm just living, let live right now. We're just in the middle of the family reunion. I ask you a question. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior? It was real nice meeting you. I'm gonna go stand over here now. And she said, What? Excuse me, what did you say? Hey, 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 hey. You speaking in tongues at me? I don't appreciate people speaking up in tongues at me. Please stop speaking in tongues at me. Because guess what? Guess what? You ain't the only one that can speak in tongues. I gave right back as good as I got. And she's getting it. And you got to understand, speaking in tongues around my family is like hitting the 911 button. People came, it's an emergency. People came quick, running, top speed. What is going on? And I am the obvious interloper. So they start speaking in tongues, helping out. And, and the force is strong with them. The force is strong, so they, and they're pushing me back, right? And I, finally, I know I got to give up the ghost, and I start running back over the hill. I'm running over there at top speed myself. I'm gone, and there, there my mother is, drinking some lemonade. So, son, <laughs> did you meet your cousin? <laughs> Welcome. The Snap Judgment. <laughs> 
Snap judgment. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. This one, we're calling Drama Mama. Our first guest of the evening, our first storyteller, Mr. David Perez. Fearing that I would lose my roots, my grandma brought me to a quinceanera. Now this was just one of many insurrections to make sure that I did not bleach under an American sun. I remember Sunday mass and its three hour ceremony held completely in Spanish at the church of Our Lady of Perpetual Guilt. I went to places whose rituals were as strange to me as their language was foreign. Dia de los Muertos, Cinco de Mayo parades, banda shows. If you don't know, banda is a form of music. Came out in the 30s when Mexicans began mingling with German Americans in Texas, creating a fusion between mariachi and polka. <laughs> Together at last. <laughs> But my grandma taught me the steps, told me that dance is the language of the soul. Tienes que permanecer mexicano, hijo, she'd say. This will help me remain Mexican. As if being Mexican were like reeling in a fish. Not something that you are, but something on the end of a line pulled so taut it cuts. And if you let go, you never see the damn thing again. Now for a while, my broken Spanish and my olive complexion sufficed. Didn't matter that I had Tarzan's vocabulary and my mother's slanted eyes. At least, I wasn't white. I slid by. Until one day, at age 17, when my grandma found the Playboy in my suitcase. Ay, Dios de mi vida, por Dios santo! It means things are going to be different from now on. From then on, Wasn't enough that we went to Sunday Mass. After the ceremony, my grandma would try to hook me up with every girl old enough to have a learner's permit. <laughs> Remaining Mexican became something less like reeling in a fish and something more like finding me an anchor. And so a week later, we were on our way to a quinceanera. And if you don't know, a quinceanera is a young lady's coming of age ceremony. Its origins can be traced to the Aztec ritual marking 15 as the age a girl became apt for motherhood. They would light incense and dance in procession. But when the Spaniards came, the Aztec temple became a church and the dance became a waltz together at last. Inside, enough white streamers hang from the ceiling to bend the rafters. One, two, three, one, two, three. I practice my steps. While my grandma goes to work, sitting me next to Consuelo, Juanita, Lourdes, Blanca, Orinella, and Liz. And it does not help that my uncles keep slipping me shots of Cuervo and play drinking games based on my performance. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if it's the booze or the pressure or the way the pink chiffon drapes from her shoulders, but when Dios Alina smiles, I kiss her long and firm, but gentle. And when I'm finished, she looks at me and screams. <laughs> Her cousins grab me, they drag me outside, throw me against a pink limousine, coil their fists, cock them back, and hold. They listen to me plea in my Tarzan Spanish. I no try to make with her, I no try, I sorry. They let me go. Translation, pinche gringo means your heritage is something on the end of a line you let go of because it cuts you back inside. Everyone's too drunk to remember what happened. I take my place on the dance floor. One, two, three, one, two, three. This is the way I remain Mexican. The boys make a circle and the girls dance from one of us to the next, to the next. And then the birthday girl enters sweeping across the floor. I don't even know her name, but soon I'm dancing with her. And I, I just look at her shoes. 
Their open toes make her feet look like two caught fish. After tonight, I will never see her again. I twirl her and she gasps. Wow, she says, you're like the best dancer here. I look up, our eyes meet together at last. Now today on Snap Judgment, Mama Drama, we've got stories about mamas and grandmamas, family, sisters, cousins, great-grandparents, and his next brother, an amazing dude, Mr. Jamie DeWolf. Every family has their black sheep. On my mother's side, our black sheep was a shepherd who enslaved his own flock. The king of the cons, a man who made himself a messiah, even though he never called himself a god. Even tonight, his words are written in steel in titanium capsules in a nuclear-reinforced bunker miles underground. So if our whole species goes extinct, his words will still survive. He was a subject we never talked about at the kids' table at family reunions, but he was my great-grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard. Lafayette Ron Hubbard. He was born a storyteller, a science fiction writer, a golden-tongued drifter who could write a book in any genre while the publisher waited downstairs in the hotel lobby. Just another name on dime store pulp mags paid only a penny a page until 1949 when he said, you want to know how you really get rich? You start a religion. A year later, he kept to his word, wrote Dianetics, transforming science fiction into fact until you could pay to flatline your mind for a fee. Overnight, he went from pennies to a profit until the world demanded to see his evidence. But Elrond knew if you don't have facts, all you need is faith. So he turned his science into a religion, and Scientology was born. A few years later, his son arrived, a baby who had survived an early abortion attempt, born premature at two pounds, two ounces, abandoned by his father as he sought fame and fortune. Now he emerged to take his parts of the new family business. He was my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Carrying his father's name and his red hair, Jr. became his right-hand man and was a devout disciple and a believer, helping him to construct the church. And it took him years to realize he was only another accomplice. Trained in the arts of electrified hypnotism, blackmail, and beatdowns, he learned to hide his crimes behind his charisma. And it took him a decade to see the holes behind the holy, the man behind the myth, his father. Stuffing thousands of dollars in a shoebox he kept secret underneath the bed, his father. Burning incriminating documents before dawn, his father. Escaping criminal charges as he ran from state to state as Junior watched his family and friends, brains washed, banks broken. Sickened by what he had seen behind the curtain, in 1959, Junior left. But his father always understood retribution better than redemption, and he stalked his son with wiretaps, break-ins, and death threats, my grandfather coming home to photographs of his children in his mailbox, playing on playgrounds, alone and unguarded, to remind him the eye of the pyramid never blinks. While every one of my aunts and uncles were taught how to use a gun, the son, forced to live like his dad, permanently on the run until he changed his last name from Hubbard to DeWolf. A lie to protect him from ever having to tell the truth. When your father 
has created a religion in your lifetime, there's no sun big enough to ever escape his shadow. But there's a thin line between prophecy and psychosis, and the barefaced Messiah ran from countries and criminal charges, an international outlaw on a ship, escaping extradition, his sanity slipping as he started confusing his past from his fiction, until one day he vanished before a courtroom or a jail cell could ever make him real again. Junior, now buried under debt, tried to flush his father out of hiding to write him a check. So he litigated the Holy Ghost to prove he still had flesh. The son took his war public to scrape the idol's gold down to rust. Junior, now a dying diabetic with an amputated foot, buried and battered from a decade of lawsuits against the man who carried his same name until the day his dad died in hiding, cremated the next morning, leaving only a legacy of ashes. The church gave the son one final offer, arrest your tongue, swallow the truth for one final check, or you and your next of kin will face a lifetime of threats. So he signed away his silence and took his secrets and two heart attacks to his grave. Another victim the church stopped pretending to save. On Thanksgiving, in a house, a self-made God paid for. His great-grandchildren never said his name. He was the one God we never gave grace to. One day, my grandfather led me to a bookshelf and showed me volumes of his father's works. And he said, your mom says you want to be a writer. Well, don't believe everything you read, but believe everything you say. I never met the man who gave me my red hair, the manic depression still twisted in the strains of my DNA. And the first time I saw a psychiatrist, when he asked me if mental illness runs in my family, all I could say was yes. <laughs> yes, it does. When I told him my great-grandfather was a cult leader that enslaved the minds of millions, he accused me of having delusions of grandeur. <laughs> what can I say? It runs in my veins. I've been in secret to L. Ron Hubbard Hollywood life exhibits where his latest victim leads me on a tour of a life he never led, my family written out of existence. And this disciple will never know the legacy of lies that I still carry in my last name, the wolf, a cover story to protect us from my great-grandfather's true children, the army of empty who greet me in train stations with an e-meter and a personality test, and they ask me if I've ever heard of L. Ron Hubbard. And I want to ask them, which one? The son or the father? The God or the man? Snap Judgment Live, Drama Mama. We'll be right back in a moment.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the live show already in progress. Please put your hands together for Mr. Ice Life. I remember when I didn't know I was black. I didn't know better. I mean, I had no sense of one group of people being better than or greater than another. At best, I knew that certain people belonged in certain places. For example, the orange people that spoke something my mama called Spanish. They lived in the Fruitville, and they sold fruit in bags. The people who were the same color as my grandma, they were on TV, you know, like the news. And also, there were cartoons. Elmer Fudd, Yosemite Sam, Daffy Duck was a duck. <laughs> but somehow I knew he was the same color as my grandma, too. The kids I went to school with with sleepy eyes, they were from far away. And they always had rice in their lunch bags. Peanut butter jelly sandwiches and Capri Suns went in mine. My grandma was born Billy Matzka in 1933 to a family of poor Irish farm workers. Yes, me. Revolutionary black power rapper man, me. My first best friend was an old white lady, my grandma, and I loved her very much. I guess because she grew up poor on a farm, she knew how to make fun out of absolutely nothing. Well, I'd say nothing. Grandma say nothing. <laughs> For example, she'd take the, the, the peaches that came in cans and she'd dump them in the sink, you know, and then she'd put the cans on the ground and she'd tap holes in the cans. And then she'd run string through the cans up to the height of my hands. And in her groggy voice, she'd go, stand on the cans, Isaac. And I'd get on the cans, and she'd put the string in my hands like reins. They were stilts. Ha! <laughs> I'd walk around the yard six inches taller than I really was. Clank, 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 clank. I felt like a giant. The kids I went to school with, they made a big deal out of me having a white grandma. Most of us never got to see white people up close unless it was the police. <laughs> so me having a white grandma meant I got to see Bigfoot up close. <laughs> She'd pull up to the school to pick me up. They'd go, that's your grandma? And I'd go, yep, and I'd run off to the car. Grandma had this long, old, gold Ford. It didn't have a tape deck, it didn't even have an FM radio. But Grandma didn't care. AM radio provided the soundtrack for old white lady daily life. <laughs> the songs always had this real kind of, you know... <laughs> slow, boring and redundant, easy to dance to. Reminiscent of Jim Crow, but sounds like music to you. But I didn't know they were old white lady songs. I just knew they were songs that my grandma liked. I'd be right next to her singing along. As I got older, I stopped getting picked up by grandma and I started catching the bus to her house by myself. I graduated from my peach can stilts to bouts of Scrabble with my grandmother. Me and my grandma, we played Scrabble. It's when I first fell in love with the concept of tying words together, you know? Not only did I graduate from my peach can stilts, I also graduated from my naive view on race. By the time I was 12 years old, I was quite clear that in this country, white meant better. 
Not only did I graduate from my naive view on race, so did my homies at school. They went from thinking it was cool that I had a white grandma to teasing me for it. That didn't bother me. What did bother me, though, was commentary from two homies in my hood, Kevin and Brandon. Brandon joined the Nation of Islam, and he was 19 when I was 12, so we all thought he was like a super grown-up, you know? He'd stand booming from the corner like it was a podium. All white people are devils. They're all racist. They enslaved black people. They enslaved the whole world. It would drive me crazy. I'd argue with him, going on and on about how that wasn't true. My grandmother was proof. She was a white woman married to a black man and had black children. How could she be racist? Here came Cool Kev. Blood. Just because she be around black people don't mean she ain't racist. Black people don't like black people. So you know white folks don't. I felt defeated on the issue, but not about my grandma. I knew she wasn't racist, and she loved me very much. The summer that I was 14 years old, I went and spent the summer with my brother in Fresno, and my sisters, they flew down to San Diego to spend time with our uncle. When I got back home, I landed at the airport. My mama said, Ice, where you want to go? What did I say? Grandma's house. Off we went. We got there, and right away, Grandma started setting up the Scrabble board. She started asking me all the questions that Grandma's asked, you know. How was your trip? How's your brother? Did you eat? Like, I'm not going to eat. <laughs> Did you talk to your sisters while you were gone? No, but Connie wrote me a letter. She said they're getting dark tans down there from all the sun. And, and then my world changed forever. My grandmother reached across the table and touched my hand. She said, oh, no. They're going to come back looking like little niggers. I fell down inside. Then I died a little. I can't tell you what happened next. I don't know if it was nighttime or daytime when we left. I regained consciousness in my bed. Weeping, mourning, the way it feels to mourn something you hold tight against the fabric of your being, the thing I was holding on to with all of my young might, the part of me that didn't want to live in a world where anyone, and surely not my grandmother, saw me as a nigger, useless, a dumb. For the years that grew into my teenage years, I imagine I saw my grandmother no more than a dozen times. We never talked about it. And I just used it as another layer on the callus to weather day-to-day -day life in the hood. Recently, though, I started writing my grandmother a letter. I wrote about what I felt like she took away from me that day in the kitchen. How it made me feel. From a space of growth, I also wrote about my travels and everywhere I've been because I knew she'd enjoy that. And for a moment, I felt a certain nostalgia and it was good to feel her close to me again. My grandmother died before I could deliver my letter. And with her death, also went the opportunity for us to confront this issue and maybe put it behind us. Love conquers hate. But where was the love? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have waited long enough. A veteran, there at the very beginning of Snap Judgment, a writer, poet, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> this person, his name is Joshua Walters. Yo 
J'entends ça, ça. J'entends la oui. Comment ça tourne Ça rata. Ça rata tout. Je t'attends. Je t'attends. Je t'attends. Je French speakers always get a little tickle when they're in the car. I met a French girl this year. Her name, Nathalie. From the south of France, where they make the triple creams. She is a thinker. Americans, they act. And then they think. The French, they think. And then they think. She speaks English, but she has a French word for a certain a part of my anatomy. A certain gold part of my anatomy. She calls it Paul Pon. French love. J'entends, j'attends sans rire. Rends à chevalier. Jeans à chevalier. Zosacon, Zosacon. I don't speak French. So when I met Natalie's mother, She sounded like a bird. Which means, are you warm enough? I said, thank you. No need to worry. I have a mother of my own. This year, I also met another French speaker from Quebec. Quebecois, a singer with a beautiful voice. She brought her mother too, a mother that did not speak like a bird, but like a French sailor. I decided. I would have these two girls meet. So, on Purim, which is the Jewish holiday like Halloween, where Jews get dressed up in Halloween costumes and they drink so much they don't know the difference between right and wrong. These two French girls met each other. And they started speaking only in French. They spoke in French for three hours. Ignoring all the English speakers at the party. When everyone left, it was just the girls. And I looked at their faces and I thought, what love? Then Natalie got up and she decided to leave. Okay. And I got worried. Because I was alone with the Quebecois. And temptation was strong. So I went to the bathroom and I did what one quarter of all Americans do when they get nervous. I took la meds. <laughs> Usually I wait for the girl to go to the bathroom. But tonight, I was taking la meds for one reason and one reason only. To kill Paul Pon. <laughs> So I took them and I went downstairs. 
where the Quebecois was. And she said, you know, I know you have a girlfriend, but I want you. And when a woman says she wants a man, there's very little he can do to resist. Unless he has laments. <laughs> so, there was a scuffle and I didn't know if Paul Pond was going to survive. I didn't know if the meds were going to win or if Paul Pond was going to win. And there was a scuffle and 45 minutes in, finally, finally, victory, France beats Canada. American pharmaceuticals are more powerful than French mojo. I fell asleep and Paul Pond was defeated. <laughs> True love conquers all. C'est la vie. You asked for it, you got it. Snap Judgment TV, raw. See what you're hearing. Added stuff available on our website snapjudgment.org Now don't go anywhere because Snap will be right back after the break. Listening to Snap Judgment Live, Drama Mama. We join the show already in progress. Our next guest is Joyce Lee, one of my favorite artists in all the land. Amen. 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 Miss Joyce Lee. Now, there are many sides to this story I'm going to tell, but I got the spotlight, so mine's the truest. <laughs> now, you ain't never heard of drama until you've heard the death of a grandma drama in a Pentecostal church <laughs> surrounded by grieving, saint, and sinning black folks. Before my granny died, she lived with my father, a deacon who I had not been on speaking terms with, but I would call my granny regularly. And one time while on the phone, my granny put down the phone and through the muffle, I could hear her screaming and a raised voice. And then I heard the door slam shut. So I asked granny, was that my father? What is he screaming about? Uh, toilet tissue. I said, what? She said, well, you know, when I moved in here, I promised that part of my chores would be to refill all the toilet tissue in the house. And... I forgot. I said, Granny, put my father on the phone right now. Granny refused and begged me never ever to say anything to my father about the toilet tissue incident for fear that it would cause a lot of drama. I promised. Three weeks after that, Granny died. The funeral <laughs> was full of the same church people that I grew up with, the same, saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost field, whores, child molesters, and wife beaters were in full attendance. But who weren't there was everybody who used my granny the most while she was living. Only three of my granny's children showed up. My Aunt Anne, who is a drug-addicted prostitute, my father, the deacon, who obviously loses his religion over toilet tissue, and my Aunt Ree, 
Now, my Aunt Re is a beautifully dark-skinned, frail-framed, horribly honest alcoholic. <laughs> and at her mother's funeral, my Aunt Re is drunk outside her mind and sitting right next to me. She says, see, see, look at here. What a church full of jackasses. They, they got the pamphlet wrong. See here, it say, it say mama had 10 kids. She had 16. What a church full of dummies. See, and then they wonder why I look for Jesus in a bottle. <laughs> the mistakes continue. The pastor just didn't seem to know when to sit down and shut up without being insulting. I'm going to keep talking until the spirit come. Amen? Yeah. I don't care if this funeral turn into a shut-in and we in it for the heat of the hour. Sister Joyce, uh, uh, where you been? We ain't seen you since freedom. Stop being a prodigal child. You're getting old and dying just like your grandmama too. Amen? Yeah. Sister Ann, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you, your mama gone. Your mama gone. And them drugs and them men got you fit to jump in this casket with her. Amen? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Now I'm going to sit down. But I ain't gonna shut up. That was the introduction for loved ones to have the floor and speak. My, uh, my Henri almost fell outside her chair when my father was the first to jump up and speak. Oh, here we go, here we go, baby girl, here we go, here we go. Huh, huh, huh. I bet you the body gonna be as warm as red wine by the time he finished bumping his gums. Listen, I'm gonna go outside for a cigarette I can't hang. I begged for her to stay, because she was my peace in this whole situation. My father began his speech with a real sweet memory of Granny before he started his fussing. You know, uh, now they say it's a shame, you know. They say it's a shame that it take a funeral to bring a family together. See, now it behooves us to start acting like a family and not use the death of a family member to start loving on each other and caring about each other. Loving on each other and caring about each other, my temper shot through the roof. As soon as my father sat down, I jumped up to speak my piece. And I started walking to the mic. And all I could think about was how disrespectful the entire funeral had been. And I had a poem in my pocket I'd written just for granny, but poetry was the last thing on my mind. I intended to tell everybody in that church off. And I knew just where to begin, with my father and that damn toilet tissue. So I held the microphone. I got my attitude all ready until my eye hit Granny's coffin. And that's when the truth hit me. This day didn't belong to anyone except for Granny. And in the midst of self-righteous fools and grieving hypocrites, my Granny was being forgotten at her own funeral. I took the poem out of my pocket and read it to Granny. And I thanked her for giving me my first journal before I even knew that writing was my love. And I asked Granny for the only thing left to ask her for in that situation. I asked her for a double portion of her awesome spirit. And when nothing else but sobbing, tears, and sniffles filled the microphone, you could have heard a pin drop. That is, until Henri decided to get up and speak her piece. Ha! Now that shuts y'all back with buzzers up now, didn't it? Silly and ugly. Church of the silly and ugly. That's what I'm going to call you. Come on, Joyce. I'm tired of it. So we left the church. I, I was still heartbroken. I am still heartbroken. So as far as my father and the toilet tissue incident, well... I am still keeping my promise to Granny. I mean, I've never said one thing to my father. I, I'm just telling you guys. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, I'd be starting a lot of drama. Our next guest 
is a writer and a poet. <laughs> but what he really does is inspire youth to seek their own inner artists. Please put your hands together for Mr. Josh Healy. Last year, I went to the best wedding ever. It was in Connecticut, and my cousin Naomi was getting married to her girlfriend, Lisa. And it was a beautiful wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. All the families were there, the aunts, the uncles, the grannies, the babies. The Manischewitz wine was flowing out the hall like honey. The rabbi got drunk and punched out the DJ after Havnagila. It was awesome. But the best part about it, here were two women getting married, and it just wasn't a big deal. They were in love, and that was enough, which was especially cool because my cousin Naomi had never really come out to the family. But we have this idea in America. It's like, you're not gay until I know that you're gay. And you know that I know that you're gay, then you're gay. Which makes no sense. It makes no sense. So I thought about this as a straight dude. Okay, as a mostly straight dude. Let's keep it real. I thought about what would it be like if straight folks had to come out too. So I imagine, I imagine myself, 15 years old, having to come out to my parents, tell them the truth about what's going on. So I'm like, mom, dad, I have something I need to tell you. Mom, you're probably gonna wanna sit down for this. And the thing, the thing you have to understand about my parents is, my parents are super liberal. I mean, super crazy liberal. I'm talking pro-choice, pro-Cuba, pro-Lorax. They make, they make Berkeley look like West Texas. <laughs> so I know that somewhere in the back of their minds, they want a gay son. <laughs> they need a gay son. It's like the missing badge of honor on their socialist Boy Scout uniforms. So here we are. I'm nervous. We're sitting at the kitchen table. My mom, sitting in full lotus position. My dad, standing beside her, gently massaging her shoulders like any good feminist husband would. And me, my legs are shaking, my voice is cracking, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, there's something I need to tell you. I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to say it. I'm, I'm straight. And they're like, no! 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 My mom just sits there, shaking her head, trying to find the center of her chi. And she's saying, where did we go wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. It didn't just happen. 
I was born this way. But I tried to fit in. Lord knows I tried. I used to wear purple. I went to every Lady Gaga show I could, but no, no. I like Metallica. And bowling. And mom and dad, yes, I like women. And I like this one woman. And mom, I want you to meet her. But I'm nervous. There's something you need to know about her first. I'm afraid to tell you, but you need to know, mom. She's white. And they're like, no! No! Oh, no, Lord. And there goes another badge ripped off the socialists wanting to have a biracial grandbaby Boy Scout uniform. And I tell you this, because it's tough and it's true. The beautiful tragedy of coming out straight in America. Produced by Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Will Urbina. Much love to Team Snap, PRX, NPR, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. See the full TV show on our site, snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Twitter, let somebody know what you just heard. I'm Glenn Washington. Thank you.